Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express, too. So, if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing. Member FINRA SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com disclosures slash high-yield account. Your industry is unique. It faces its own challenges and risks that set it apart. That means choosing just any insurance company just won't cut it. At The Hartford, we take pride in knowing the ins and outs of your industry and help provide solutions that suit how you do business, from liability and property insurance to workers' comp and more. At The Hartford, we don't just talk about specialization, we live it. Learn how The Hartford can help your business at thehartford.com. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week. What's the state of corporate governance? The deficit is a real issue. The U.S. economy continues to send mixed signals. The financial stories that shape our world. Fed action to calm concerns over dollar liquidity. Some encouraging China data. The pound's reaction to news on Brexit. Through the eyes of the most influential voices. Larry Summers, the former Treasury Secretary. Starbucks CEO Kevin Johnson. SEC Chairman Jay Clayton. Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston on Bloomberg Radio. Welcome to Wall Street Week on Bloomberg Radio. I'm David Weston. Coming up this hour, BlackRock commits to combating climate change. Plus, a look at phase one of the U.S.-China trade deal. But first, what a difference a decade makes. Just over 10 years ago, U.S. banks seemed on death's door. And this week, all the majors beat expectations across the board. Despite all that complaining about how those nasty Washington regulators have been holding them back. To take a look at what the bank's performance may signal about the economy overall, we welcome now our contributors for this installment of Wall Street Week. We're joined by Asani Beschloss, Rock Creek Group's CEO, and Sam Palmasano, the former CEO of IBM. Let's talk about these bank earnings, because they really sort of shot the lights out this week. Uh, at the same time, there's a question, what does it say about the banks as opposed to the economy? President Trump thinks actually he deserves the credit for it. He was at the White House this week, and he said to Mary Erdos, the senior executive of J.P. Morgan, you should be thanking me, Mary. This is what he said. Mary Erdos, J.P. Morgan Chase. They just announced earnings, and they were incredible. Where, where are you? They were very substantial. Will you say thank you, Mr. President, at least? Huh? I made a lot of bankers look very good. So, Sam, does he have a point? I mean, is this really the economy really going gangbusters? Well, first of all, I mean, if I had the best earnings I've ever had in the history of the IBM company, I would thank anybody who took credit <laughs> for that. I mean, uh, let's be honest to J.P. Morgan. They did a phenomenal job, and I think their hats off to them. Uh, there's no doubt the economic environment is better. The consumer's engaged, and you see that showing up, I believe. Our colleague knows more about that from an economic perspective than I do. So that's all a positive note. The other thing that's interesting to me was that 
there's a lot of growth in earnings in the investment bank, you yeah. know, which is an indication of, let's say, smart trading in fiscal policy or monetary policy and those sorts of things, not necessarily a correlation to the economy overall. So what about the economy, Sonny? I think the interesting thing was also the trading area contributed a huge amount mm -hmm. to the earnings reports this mm -hmm. week. And the question is, is that really an indication about the long-term economic forces, or is that sort of a short-term phenomena related to the issues we had on the repo markets and people trading a lot last year? So in terms of the economy, obviously the economy is doing better in many sectors. Uh, the retail sector was very, very strong. And as you could see within the bank's earnings, areas that had to do with consumer and those who do um, have cards seem to have done a lot better as well. Well, you can say that it's all about trading, but in fact, it seems like Goldman Sachs wants to become J.P. Morgan. They want to do less trading and more retail banking. They want to get into markets and things like that. I mean, the banks seem to be going more into traditional banking areas. I mean, from my point of view, having run a company and trying to create your own value, consistency is more important than volatility. Hmm. So if you can create a, a business model with less volatility, I mean, trading operations, as we all know, are market dependent, and you have huge quarters and you have bad quarters, right? So you have a lot of volatility in the earnings, and therefore your multiples aren't as large as perhaps if you were consistently delivering earnings growth over time. So I think it makes a lot of sense for a lot of these institutions to begin to diversify their income streams to get a little more consistency within their business models. What happened to regulation? Regulation, a lot of it has been taken off, but a lot of it is still in place. So, for example, when we looked again at the earnings reports, we saw Wells Fargo. The issues yeah. related to litigation did affect them, like, you know, $1.7 billion. Goldman had issues related to regulation. Yeah. So it certainly has impacted some of the banks, but the ones that did really well this week, like Morgan Stanley, like J.P. Morgan, yes. were actually the ones who did not have a big hit or who post-2008, made a lot of the adjustments. Because the investments that the banks made to deal with the regulatory framework that was put in place post-2008, a lot of them have not removed. It's too expensive should the government change or should regulation come back to put it all right back. And the other thing, they've made huge investments in technology. I think sometimes yeah, when you look at the ratios of expense ratios and cost ratios, I mean, and J.P. Morgan's a leader in this space, quite honestly, having worked with a lot of these banks, but they've made massive investments in technology, not only in their core operations, but also addressing a lot of the things associated with this digital economy, often referred to as fintech. But nonetheless, they've all invested heavily, and I think they're getting the returns for those investments. We're just starting earnings season now, and everybody's trying to figure out where are we going with yes. earnings overall. Uh, a lot of investors say, well, maybe banks are sort of a bellwether because it's an indication of how the economy's going. When you were at IBM, was there a correlation between what banks did and how you did? Economic cycles, yes, because we were large and in 170 countries, so capital spending was very important to us. So if you had to correlate, as we would think about our potential for earnings growth, unless we had a product cycle and those kinds of things in technology, which you still see today, it was more around a correlation of capital expenditure because we were tied to that. I mean, the budgets were set along companies' confidence to invest. I was going to say, in fact, the loans to the industrial sector and manufacturing did go down, down. Yeah, on right. behalf of banks. So yeah. the correlation may be weaker even today. Yeah. So I just think that, who knows, we'll see. You know, I'm no longer engaged day to day. I retired. I was CEO. 2011 was my last year. But my sense, if you look at tech earnings, which I follow a little more closely, they've been going down. Earnings have been going down. Forget the stock prices. And, and hopefully there's a sentiment from the analyst community that the fourth quarter earnings in tech bottom. 
and then it begins to come back again in 2020. Well, what about that, Afsana? Because I think 2019 was a story of uh, actually PE multiples really sustaining the value of the market more yes. than the earnings. The earnings Absolutely. were up, but fairly modestly, not nearly as much as the market was. And what can we expect in 2020? Can we expect basically the earnings to catch up? That is the sense we have right now at this point of the year. And also it's the indications that CEOs are giving of what it will be like this year. I think that is going to have a huge impact. The only problem with that also is that if there is any deviation from that expectation, that company will probably end up doing a lot less well. We'll be back with Afsani Beshlos and Sam Palmisano. Coming up, a look at how climate change is reshaping the financial markets. We'll discuss with our roundtable next. I'm David Weston, and this is Bloomberg Wall Street Week. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. We continue our roundtable with Afsani Beshlos, Rock Creek Group CEO, and Sam Palmisano, the former CEO of IBM. The financial world may be finding its voice when it comes to climate change. This week, BlackRock mentioned climate 29 times in its annual letter, saying climate change will upend global finance. And it announced a range of initiatives from eliminating investments in thermal coal to launching new investment products that screen for fossil fuels. BlackRock is in good company. Goldman Sachs in December pledged to avoid financing coal mines and Arctic exploration. In an op-ed, CEO David Solomon wrote that, quote, over the next 10 years, Goldman Sachs will target $750 billion of financing, investing, and advisory activity to nine areas that focus on climate transition and inclusive growth. So, Afsana, this is not new to you, the idea that we're going to take into account climate issues when we invest. Climate issues have been around for those of who have been thinking about it since about 30, 40 years ago. <laughs> and I think the term ESG and the term sort of impact and looking at climate as part of your economic decision making has been around, particularly in countries that are growing very fast and using energy very fast. Well, and you came from Iran, which is dependent upon oil at the time. Absolutely. You studied energy, basically. You were a banker so, in energy so in the developing world. So you know this area terribly well. We were working on renewable energy at the World Bank in the 1990s. And I remember going to Shell, and they closed down the renewable area because there was really, the economics was not good, nobody was adopting it. And it's really, really exciting to see where we are now with the price of solar being so competitive with, um, with... all the other with hydrocarbons. Exactly. I mean, you know, uh, there's been a lot of progress. I think, I think to me, an indication of a huge shift is that the, the CEOs of the major oil companies, the integrated oil companies, all signed the Paris Accord and exactly. supported the Paris Accord to President Trump when he was talking about withdrawal. Right. That's, this is a, having been involved with this industry for a long time, this is a dramatic shift, I'd not say, from 10 years ago. Uh, if you would have expected the leaders of those major integrated oil companies to go support a climate initiative, even though the science is somewhat um, not completely defined, and these guys are mostly geophysicists, I mean, they'd argue the science, but fundamentally that they got behind it, I think is a major shift. But Sam, as a CEO, how do you trade off the long term from the shorter term? Because as a practical matter, you may have to give up some profitability in the short term for the longer term health of the company. It depends. See, this is where, uh, this is, I can get through a long discussion of this because in my little think tank, we did a study about activism in investing, and we have a database of 51,000 engagements. But the reason why I say it depends is because if you view ESG as mm-hmm. your brand, this is the brand, right? Then it's different than you view it as an initiative because you think it's, uh, the timing could be good. 
But if you live by that as your value system, and I'll give you a quick example. We launched this thing called Smarter Planet. Smarter Planet addressed climate emissions in Stockholm and cities like that because of traffic. And that was Help. a long time ago. We launched it in 2008. Hmm. Long was, before this was fashionable. But we, well before that, right? And it had to do with climate. It had to do with cleaning up Galway Bay, right. the Hudson River with the spills, all these sorts of things. Those projects were every bit as economically attractive to our returns as other things we were doing. I mean, you could say, well, you're a technology company, you can use software and all that, which we could, you know, but nonetheless, we picked it, I would say, because we felt that there was an emerging need for smarter cities. Mm -hmm. And oh, by the way, our workforce hiring, the applications of IBM right. after we launched quadrupled in like right. 90 days. But, but Sonny, this people, is climate, you know, right. this is the environment uh, in the ESG, yes, the absolutely. E in ESG. Uh, social and governance, do they drive results as much as a practical matter? So I think on the environment side and on energy, it's now proven, I think, yeah. that cleaner sources of energy do compete in the short run and in the long run. When it comes to social and governance, governance has been around for a long time. Yes. Sam, in fact, <laughs> was leading the charge for a long, long time. And right. you remember uh, the days when uh, Nell Milo and Mr. Monks, you know, started ISS. So this, the, yes, the exactly. use of governance, again, right. has been around for a long time. I think what is changing now is companies are actually really adopting it. Those who didn't care about risk management got into trouble. So now it's uh, a very important yeah. part of governance. I, I mean, I think that there are very good reasons for it. But governance is complicated, as right. I, our colleague knows, because some people use governance for the right purposes, responsibility, transparency of earnings right. and behavior, whatever it happens to be. Other people will use it from an activism investor perspective to get control over boards to push their agenda. And their agenda is not necessarily in sync with the long-term strategy right. of the company. So I would argue in some cases they've actually used these proxy surrogates to advance their agenda and, and the regulators to get more of this as far as board turnover and separate incentives for boards and those sorts of things to drive their own personal agendas. So it's, yes, at the highest level, everybody wants great governance. You don't want another Enron or any of those sorts of things. However, it's also being, I would argue, misused by certain parties Absolutely. in the market. Well, to that point, Afsani, if you don't have some standardized ways of mm -hmm. measuring E, S, or G, then it becomes sort of a marketing tool. Right. You say, yo, we believe in this. Yes. But how are we going to get to a world where actually we are all reporting the same way so we can measure? It is difficult to measure every yeah. industry <laughs> and every sector and every strategy with the same metrics. So there are lots and lots of different groups that have emerged, including yeah. like SASB who's trying to sort of create a structure yeah. for this. Right. So I think it will be difficult to put one set of metrics for everything, but to have reasonable metrics, again, going back to climate, because you can measure carbon relatively mm -hmm. easily, that's more straightforward. What you talked about, social, much harder to measure if inequality has increased or reduced and how over what kind of period and how has that impacted, let's say, just something like well-being. Are people more productive in their jobs or less productive? Those take a long time. And you've lived that I've and lived you've it, had to I, practice see, I it. I think as long as you do it for the right reasons and take for, you know, say, social or inclusion. I mean, if your goal is have the best talent pool in the world, you're inclusive. Right. I used to say, I don't care what they are. I don't care what you are. I don't care what your beliefs, your religion, your gender, your... I want the best I can get, and I'm going to reward you equally, and this is how the place is going to work. So I think it's a talent attraction. So we never did it in IBM because we thought the government was going to audit us and we had to measure it. We did it because we wanted the best talent we could find, wherever we could find it. But how can we have a discussion about governance with a straight face this week when you saw what went on with Boeing, 
uh, and for that matter, Nissan as well. What's going on with Nissan Renault? See, I think it's culture. I mean, I believe that those issues are driven as much by culture, which then causes the governance incident. And by that I mean, I only know what I've read in the paper, so I don't have any inside information. But I would surmise, having been in those jobs, that those leaders at that point in time were overreaching for whatever set of purposes, Mm. pushing schedules, lower costs, what have you, except you have a product you're developing that could people could die or pushing very hard for revenue and at the same time correlating to a high compensation package. So you overreached for personal gain. If you do that, you're going to have governance issues. It's a cultural problem. It's not a, you can't, you can't govern bad behavior. You should have integrity in executives who believe in a value system. Afsani Bishlas and Sam Palmasano will be staying with us. Coming up, we'll take a look at the phase one trade deal between the United States and China and hear from a former United States trade representative. That's next. I'm David Weston, and this is Bloomberg Wall Street Week. Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express, too. So, if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing. Member FINRA SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high dash yield dash account. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. President Trump calls it the biggest reason I ran for president, that phase one trade deal he signed at the White House this week. But our Wall Street Week contributor, Larry Summers, says it may be big for some U.S. companies, but it isn't big for U.S. workers or for the country overall. I don't think it does much. It puts some American corporations first, especially ones who've outsourced to China. It gets them more ability to invest in China. It gets them better protection of their intellectual property in China. It gets them relaxation on restrictions that they joint venture in China. So for a certain number of American corporations, it's terrific. I'm not sure how American workers gain it all from American corporations being better able to outsource to China. So it seems an odd priority for this president who keeps bemoaning outsourcing. The issues that affect American workers, issues like Chinese subsidies, aren't addressed at all. The issues he's talked about of enforcing trade agreements, they're not talked about at all. So this is a put America corporations first agreement. Yes, there's some managed trade provisions about increased exports, but The only effect those will have is to rearrange the patterns of trade with American soybeans going to China and Brazilian soybeans going other places rather than the current trade paths. 
but I see nothing in this that will importantly strengthen the American economy. Now we continue our roundtable with Asani Beschloss, Rock Creek Group CEO, and Sam Palmisano, former CEO of IBM. And we also welcome our special guest, Michael Froman, former United States Trade Representative. Michael, what do you make of Larry's comments? Well, I think to the degree that it does increase U.S. exports to China, manufactured products, agriculture, et cetera, uh, that is good for American workers, farmers, and ranchers. But Larry is right to underscore how important the remaining issues are, the structural issues of reforming the state-owned enterprise sector in China or dealing with uh, subsidies in China that really distort the global economy and have an adverse effect on, uh, on, on U.S. companies. So phase two is going to be very, very important here. I would just comment, though. I mean, I think that's all correct, except that the fact that there's some stability in the relationship is a positive. And by that, I mean back to investment in the United States. If you look at capital investment, uh, 17 and 18, it was up, say, 7 8%. It was flat in 19. Maybe that there's some stability now. Companies, will, since they understand the landscape, and I agree with, there's a lot more to be done in the detail. We all understand that. But maybe that will go back to investing again. Maybe it's low single digits, but some level of investment, which is also good for the American worker. I was curious to, um, to ask you, Michael, do you think that in the execution of this new trade agreement, uh, the Chinese will, in fact, abide by the kind of deadlines that are put in? Or in your experience, their execution has in the past kind of been a little different? Implementation is always, uh, is always difficult uh, with that. And I think the Trump administration is very focused on, uh, on seeing whether they do implement this or uh, on schedule uh, or not. For example, they have 30 days to come up with a intellectual property rights plan. We'll all be eager to see uh, what's, what's in there. But they also allow themselves some back doors in the agreement. When they talk about increasing U.S. exports by $200 billion, the Chinese put in their language that says, uh, assuming that market forces uh, uh, allow that, um, suggesting that there may be some uh, obstacles to actually implementing that. You know, to me, I, I would judge the agreement about whether it advances the kind of economic reforms we want to see in China or not. Because ultimately, the big question is, how do we accommodate an economy as important, as large uh, as China that follows quite a different set of rules into the global economy? And that requires us to have more convergence around a common set of rules. Michael, did President Trump accomplish one thing, no matter what happens, that is, he got their attention in a way that they've not gotten the Chinese attention on trade before? Did he have to hit them over the head with a tube of force, so to speak? Well, certainly the, the threat of, of tariffs and the imposition of tariffs certainly did get their attention. And, you know, I think, as Sam said, it's good that we've called a truce and we have seen some de-escalation of the trade war. Uh, there still are tariffs on $350 billion of exports to the United States. So over half our trade is still subject to tariffs. And the new enforcement mechanism opens up a door to greater unilateral action than we've seen before. Before, if there was a trade dispute, you had to take it to some arbitration panel, get a positive decision, and then you could impose tariffs. The Trump administration's innovation here is that there's a period of consultation, but then ultimately the U.S. and China can decide on their own to impose tariffs or take other actions against the other without having to go through any other process. And we're hoping that both sides are approaching that with goodwill and the best intentions.
Thanks to former U.S. Trade Representative Michael Froman. Afsani Beshlas and Sam Palmasano stay with us. Coming up, Erica Karp, Cornerstone Capital founder and CEO, joins us to discuss sustainable investing. That's next. I'm David Weston, and this is Bloomberg Wall Street Week. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. We continue our roundtable with Afsani Beshlas, Rock Creek Group's CEO, and Sam Palmasano, the former CEO of IBM. It's time now that we get a second opinion on one of our top stories this week. When it comes to sustainable investing, Erica Karp is a true expert. She's the founder and CEO of Cornerstone Capital, a member of the World Economic Forum Global Agenda Council on Financing and Capital, and a founding board member of the Sustainability Accounting Standards Board. Welcome, Erica. Great to have you here. Thank you for having me. We've had a little discussion about ESG, environmental social governance here, but you really can tell us how do you get it done. Everybody seems to think it's a good idea in the abstract, but how does it get translated into the real world? It's actually relatively simple. Um, ESG is an analytical discipline. It's not a style, it's not a trend, it's not, it's not a strategy. ESG is research, it's investment research, and it has to be done in the course of the investing in, frankly, anything. Yeah, so one day we're not going to say, uh, people won't say ESG investing or SRI or values-based investing or impact investing. It's investing, period. ESG is an analytical tool, all right? So if you think about it that way, you know, the sky's the limit in terms of how much money we can move towards right. impact investing. But how do you get from a marketing slogan to actually changing the real world? Mm -hmm. Well, uh, as an example, we mentioned the SASB, right? Yeah. So this is, you know, so SASB, which, by the way, is part of what BlackRock said they're embracing, right. so that's huge. Because with SASB, what we begin to do for the Sustainability Accounting Standards Board. Right. All right. And you're creating the metrics around this. It's actually not metrics. Mm -hmm. It's more like, um, we can call it metrics, but it's corporate disclosures. Exactly. Corporate right. disclosure of material ESG exactly. factors. Right? And so we're just, this is a piece of infrastructure. Mm -hmm. Right? And once we have that infrastructure, we get better data. Right? The data providers can do something better with it. The index providers can rely on better data. The ETFs can rely on better data. Right now, there is systemic flaw in the system, and that's problematic. I was going to ask you, a lot of people do want to allocate more mm -hmm. to uh, sustainable investments, to impactful investments, to ESG investments. Why is it that they can't find the right opportunities? Okay. Well, they can if they give it a little more effort, right? <laughs> right. The, you, right. I mean, the opportunities are out right. there. Sustainable investment in ESG analysis mm -hmm. does not limit your opportunity mm -hmm. set. Should so expand great. it, right? It does expand mm -hmm. it. It gives you more predictive insight. Exactly. The issue is um, that they're kind of, actually, there's four issues that we have to think about. We have to think about data quality. Mm -hmm. We have to think about the language of sustainability. We have to think about the fear that there is some sort of concessionary return. Right. Right? And then we have to worry about the fear or the, the myth that we're breaking a fiduciary duty. Mm -hmm. None of those are real. But we have to make sure people know that. So it's, you know, that's why BlackRock's move is so important. Well, that's my question. Is it that important? As you read that letter, does it really make a difference? It's not that they 
per se are making a difference. It's that they're speaking about it, the consciousness of this raising is making a difference. And just, we need to have context, right? Think about the magnitude of the problem, right? Take every dollar of BlackRock's AUM, $7 trillion. If we took the $7 trillion today, it would give us about maybe three years of the capex, the spending that we would need in alternative energies to transform the economy. That's it, right? So their whole asset base is not enough. Their voice starts to move people, you know, and when you can move people, then you can move money. Well, I'm just curious because, I mean, when I was working, which is about 10 years ago, we did corporate social responsibility reports. We had a pretty good story in all these areas of inclusion on sustainability and all that sort of stuff, right? Mm We'd pitch it like crazy. I mean, and I pitched it, investor relations pitched it, and we didn't have a receptive, but no one did much about mm-hmm. it. I shouldn't say, we thought we could get people to move into our stock mm-hmm. based upon the things we were doing. Mm-hmm. And other than the financial results and cash flow, no, not many people really moved. Mm-hmm. So what do, you, what do you think has changed? It's only been 10 years, I mean, right. so what is it? You know what's changed? And this is the coolest thing. I mean, we, can do, we did a meta study. It's called Sacrifice Nothing. And we can look at 2,200 reports out there, and the vast majority of them show when you do ESG analysis, not only do you not give up returns, uh, in many cases, you do better, right? So when it comes to, in the final analysis, it's always going to be about financial performance, Mm -hmm. right? And so once people realize those four myths, once we, we put them to rest, Money's going to start to flow. And so BlackRock, I mean, there's lots of ideas that we would love to give with BlackRock and partner with them on thinking about, you know, those four factors. Data, data right. and measurement. Yes. These are two of the right. issues we have to be thinking well, that's about. Da- that's stock picking. What happens in a passive yeah. world? Exactly. The world's going passive. Right. It's not going active. Right. Uh, well, actually, it should, arguably, <laughs> because if everyone's just hugging the benchmark, frankly, who cares? But um, well, it'll, it'll perform at the benchmark, <laughs> whatever that happens right, to be. Right. right. So, like, yeah. Um, but here's the issue: these indices are being created based on flawed data, right? And so, if everyone just comes to terms with that and moves towards getting standards for corporate disclosure, standards that give us predictive insight into investment outcomes, then you know the indices and everything else become better you know, um, proxies for performance. But here's the thing. I, I can't remember. You'll know. Which economist said that um, great investing is anticipating the anticipations of others, right? <laughs> Index investing, passive investing, is not, not anticipating. Right. It's not proactive. It's not innovative. And great managers, active managers, know that they're going to invest in innovation, Right then they're going to be able to outperform over the long run. So when everyone's, like, freaked out... Which is why it's happening more and more on venture and private equity. Right. And less on uh, public markets. Because that's what... That's exactly it. Erica, thank you so much for being here. It's really a treat to have you. That's Erica Karp of Cornerstone Capital. And this is where we get the final thoughts from our contributors this week. And we thought we'd talk a little bit about Leon Black. He's on the cover of Bloomberg Business Week this very week about how he makes money when other people are losing money. So how how does he pull that off? Because he invests in companies that are deeply distressed, uh, often imposes austerity, lays some people off, maybe leverages up, but he does all right. Well, I guess my question is that financial management, that's his financial management, works for a period of time. 
at some point in time as a company, small or large, startup with five people, or IBM with a half a million, you have to create value. You have to create value for your customers, your products, your society, whatever it is. Managing the company financially is one element. It's an important element, but it's only one dimension of the challenge of the CEO. He has all these other dimensions. The most important dimension is what has he done for his customers or his clients, and what has he or she done for their employee base. That's the two most important dimensions. So I accept and I respect people who have made a lot of money. I'm jealous of what they've done to make a lot of money. <laughs> but if I just pulled the financial levers in the IBM company, in those days I probably would have lasted four or five years. I wouldn't have made it a decade. But, Asani, that's spoken as a true CEO. Absolutely. Who wants to run the company, Absolutely. build the institution. And but also, what is an investor? Talking about, <laughs> right. I, exactly. And also, you're talking about IBM. I mean, when we look at the markets, you know, a lot of people in the markets are invested in high yield. A lot of people right. are. And, and basically, what he's doing is going in finding a distressed situation mm -hmm. or something close to distress that has a lot of problems, not, yeah. not the company you were running, mm -hmm. and tries to reform it. I think the big question is, are those reforms for the short term so that then you, you know, sort of sell it? I think the big problem about the model of private equity sometimes has, um, has been blamed for being too short term because after 10 years you have to sell the company to somebody else and move on to make another investment. So I think um, some of what is now interesting and people are looking at uh, is models where you do find the distressed company, you do turn it around. Right. You do make it profitable, but it goes on for a long time. You don't, yeah. you know, so coming up with, um, with models of capital that are sustainable uh, and long-term well, so and that you don't have to actually flip it at the end of the Sam, period. Sam, how often are those private equity firms selling it to another private equity firm and basically the, the money's being made on the fees? On both sides of it, yes. And, but, but you're right. Hassan uh, is right because m most of these companies are, have a seven to ten year horizon for their investment. That, and that's what they've convinced to their investors that they're going to be seven to ten years for their targets. And so therefore, and, and you could argue in many cases, you actually could turn the company around, I would argue, if I was doing that in probably less than four or five years. And then you could also create a value proposition associated with it. What I argue, as you say, I argue from a point of view of a CEO, but you haven't done your job if you haven't been able to connect with the people who give you the money other than the investors. And they're your customers, okay, right? And the people that extend your brand to them are your employees. And so it's, I mean, I... I right. really, uh, I have an issue with the fact, look, I, if somebody asked me to go work with those guys and do this right. for a living, right. I could do it in four or five years. I could right. guarantee you the returns. I don't think it's quality right. work. But you know, the, on the other thing that is really interesting, right. Apollo is a in really successful firm, but is it right. going to be sustainable? The founders right. have created it, but as somebody okay. who makes other companies better, can you make your own right. company sustainable? Thanks to our roundtable of Rock Creek Group CEO Afsane Beshlas and Sam Palmasano, the former CEO of IBM. Also, many thanks to special guests Erica Karp, Cornerstone Capital founder and CEO, and former U.S. Trade Representative Michael Froman. That's it for Bloomberg Wall Street Week from Bloomberg Radio. If you missed an episode of Bloomberg Wall Street Week, full episodes are now available on YouTube, the Bloomberg Terminal, and Bloomberg.com. I'm David Weston. This is Bloomberg. Your industry is unique. It faces its own challenges and risks that set it apart. That means choosing just any insurance company just won't cut it. 
At The Hartford, we take pride in knowing the ins and outs of your industry and help provide solutions that suit how you do business, from liability and property insurance to workers' comp and more. At The Hartford, we don't just talk about specialization, we live it. Learn how The Hartford can help your business at thehartford.com. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.